Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts here on the artistic staff of Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by the best butter turner out there, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed Musicals' other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I've turned some butter in my time. You know, you're doing fine, Annika Chapin. Annika Chapin, AC. Um, <laughs> before we get to uh, what show we are putting in the spotlight today, a uh, quick uh, housekeeping thing that Goodspeed is back in live performance in the Opera House doing a, a Roger Hammer signs, a grand night for singing. It's a lovely evening, full, uh, a lovely night, I'm going to say, or a grand night, uh, full of great Roger Hammer sign music. And part of the reason that we are putting this show in the spotlight. So, Annika, why don't you remind us of the clue that we gave last episode for this musical? Well, this show had something very famous said about it out of town, which was both famous and ultimately ironic, considering what happened to the show. But it was reported that when the show was out of town, Walter Winchell said, no legs, no jokes, no chance about this show. And of course, it was Oklahoma by Rodgers and Hammerstein, which ended up being not only a mega hit, but literally the sort of granddaddy of all American musical theater in, in many people's opinions. Um, so I think it uh, had a chance and I think it took that chance and ran with it. Oh, well, and I, and I learned in research that it was in fact, Walter Winchell's uh, one of his assistants or associates went and saw the show out of town and cabled that like telegrammed that to him, uh, which he then put in his column. Uh, so he gets the credit, but really that's an associate gone wrong. We're looking at you Rose. Yeah. Rose oh. is the wrong one here. <laughs> also, I would just like to say there are legs in the Dream Ballet and there are a fair number of jokes, but I, the point is well made. At the time, there was a lot of like showgirls and like waka waka vaudeville jokes. So there were not either of those kind of things, but it is but, actually quite a funny show. Very funny. Uh, okay. So uh, with that, that brings us to the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of Oklahoma in less than a minute. So, Annika, do you have a minute on the clock? I do. Ready? Rogers, Hammerstein, go. Okay, so uh, you've got uh, Curly. He is a cowboy, and he uh, is singing his beautiful song, and he comes upon Ann Eller's churn and butter. He's come to ask Lori to the box social. Lori, who is his longtime girl-next-door kind of crush, uh, she turns him down to go to the box social. They both clearly have feelings for each other. They won't talk about it because she actually decides to go with Judd, the evil farmhand. And by evil, I mean misunderstood and definitely troubled and a bit of an incel. Uh, so that it's all revolving around the box social and who's taking Lori. And then the subplot is Ado Annie, who is Lori's best friend, also is in a bit of a love triangle herself with um, Allie Hackham as she would say it, um, although he probably pronounces it Ali Hakim, who is a Persian um, peddler, and Will Parker, who is another uh, a cowboy, uh, very much in Curly's vein and often thought to be Curly's best friend, though there's no text to support that. And uh, yeah, so then uh, Lori ends up going with Judd, but then Curly wins her basket and they fall in love oh, and minute. get married. And I ran out of time. You did, but you got most of it in there. Yeah, so I ran out of time there, but um, basically that's it. They end up getting married, and then um, Judd falls on his knife and uh, and dies uh, because he uh, is clearly very drunk and upset about uh, about the marriage. And um, 
Will Parker and Erdogan end up getting married. Um, and uh, Ali Hackham gets married off to Gertie Cummings, the most uh, infamous and uh, obnoxious laugh in all of musical theater. Correct. Yep. And that brings us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea of the show, what the authors are trying to say, and what's the idea that really governs the show. So Oklahoma is obviously about a huge number of things, but I think ultimately it's easiest to think about Oklahoma as a bit of a story about the formation of America and the heart, the quote unquote heartland of America. Uh, it premieres in 1943, right in the middle of World War II, and it certainly has a lot of that Americana and like, um, you know, the the good old homeland that we're fighting for against the terrors of the world. Um, so it definitely, that to me is like intrinsic in the nature of the show. I think, I think one of the things that, one of the ideas and themes that runs most through the works of Roger Hammerstein is um, kind of an us versus them mentality or a, a version of what are the things that unite people and what are the things that divide people um, seemingly or otherwise. Uh, and this show definitely has that with the farmer and the cowman uh, kind of spat, the good guy versus bad guy with Judd and um, uh, with Judd versus Curly, even like Will Parker and Allie Hackham as like the insider outsider. There's a lot um, of that kind of tension that is explored throughout the show. Um, so I guess you could say community, as we often say, community is an idea that is very much uh, in, conver in conversation with Oklahoma. But Annika, what would you say is the, the idea that governs the show? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. There's certainly a lot about America, but I think community is is it. I think insiders and outsiders, this show certainly has a lot to say about that. Um, and I think, you know, the, the recent revival directed by Daniel Fish really pulled that out of the narrative too, especially um, the especially the more kind of sinister elements of a group deciding uh, who is an insider and who is an outsider. Um, it's kind of an interesting one if you look at the standard dramatic structure, because it is in many ways uh, quite conventional. The romantic lead couple um, who are falling in love, the comedy duo, the sort of um, older female uh, wise figure who's in a lot of Rapture's Hammerstein shows especially, but appears in many, many early musicals. Um, and, uh, you know, a villain who's uh, complicated to say the least. But um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when you look at this sort of standard question of who's the protagonist and what their journey is. It's a little bit harder to figure out here. I mean, sort of it's curly, except for Lori is the one who has much more of an emotional journey. Um, but the ending of her story is not necessarily the ending of the show. The ending of the show is definitely the group as a whole and the town and this and this community. So um, a little bit not based on one particular character, but also uh, just works just fine without that. So, um, yes, that is to say I agree with everything you said. And it's a really interesting one to look at. Uh, yes, although I think a credit to Oscar Hammerstein, which is that there's a lot more shading and complication in these characters than they're often given credit for, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about later. But uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a whole thing about curly and sex. We'll get into it. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Oklahoma? We can never go back to before. All right. Well, 
the history of Oklahoma is fascinating. And um, I wanted to dive a little bit into the source material for this show because it's it's actually not an original piece written by Oscar Hammerstein. It is adapted from a play uh, which was written by the playwright Lynn Riggs uh, called Green Grow the Lilacs. And that actually in itself is a reference to an Irish folk song that was sung um, for many, many years in this era. So, so let's start with Lynn Riggs himself. Lynn Riggs was a playwright who was born in Claremore, Oklahoma, which might sound familiar because it is a, a town that is frequently referenced in the musical Oklahoma. Um, and when he was born, it was called Indian Territory, which as they say in the show of Oklahoma, that's also true. Um, you'll notice there's a lot of overlap between the life of Lynn Riggs and what appears in the story that is Greenboro the Lilacs slash Oklahoma the Musical. Um, so Lynn Riggs was himself partially Cherokee. And when he was two years old, his mother secured him a land allotment, which helped support his writing career. So it's it's really interesting that Lynn Riggs himself was Native American, but Native Americans do not appear anywhere in either Green Grow the Lilacs or in Oklahoma itself. Um, They're just kind of missing from the narrative entirely. So kind of an interesting element there. Um, so basically Lynn Riggs was, did many things. He did many jobs and traveled a bunch and he ended up falling in with a group of writers in Santa Fe and starting to write uh, plays and poems. And after a little bit, he decided he was gonna move to New York and write for Broadway. And he did that. He wrote 21 full-length plays over the course of his life, several short stories, poems, and a television script. Green Grow the Lilacs was his most well-known play. Um, and ironically enough, he wrote it while he was in Paris on a fellowship, which I kind of love that this like very American autobiographical story written about the town he grew up in um, with these characters that are based on people in his family and he, he grew up with. Uh, it was written at the Café Les Deux Majots, which is a very famous cafe where many, many artists and surrealists um, and writers gathered and wrote, including Sartre and Hemingway, and the list goes on and on. So this is yet another thing that was born in that uh, French cafe. But the play, which basically follows the plot of Oklahoma, sort of, um, same characters. Uh, certain characters are much more prominent, like uh, the Judd character, who in the play is called Jeter. Um, uh, he was he's more prominent in the play and a few other characters are a little bit less prominent. Ado Annie, Will Parker was is barely appears at all. But it's the same gist of it. Aunt Eller, Lori, Curly, um, that that story is all there. Although it's actually quite darker in its tone. It ends on a much bleaker point. So it's kind of interesting to watch where that play came to in terms of Oklahoma, which became much more famous than it. Um, but all of these people were, as I said, people who Lynn Riggs grew up around um, and knew. And my favorite was that the real Judd was a man named Jeter Davis, uh, who was described by one of Riggs' cousins as a farmhand, but one of those guys who would get drunk on Saturday and thought he was a whiz with women, but he was just a dirty old boy, <laughs> which I really thought was great. Um, and interestingly enough, when this play was produced on Broadway, it was produced by the Theater Guild, which will come into play uh, later with the story of Oklahoma quite prominently. Um, and it was moderately well-received. It, it had 61 performances and uh, featured actually music as part of the evening. There were ballads, cowboy songs, and dances. 
uh, interspersed with the scenes. So it's interesting that the entire life of the show had music around it for this story. And the other thing I just wanted to notice was uh, Lynn Riggs was, was gay. He was a homosexual who was a frequent uh, escort to famous Hollywood stars because he would just, he looks great on a red carpet, but he's one of the early kind of LGBT icons of this time, because although he wasn't um, super out, it was very well known that he was gay and he lived with a man. And this is a, an interesting part of his history as well. So I just wanted to mention that too, but yeah, really kind of an interesting source material. Obviously now Greenboro, the lilacs is really only known as the source material for, for Oklahoma, even to the point where Lynn Riggs' grave, his tombstone, says he wrote Green Grow the Lilacs, which inspired Oklahoma, <laughs> which I thought was kind of brutal a little bit, considering he wrote many other things. And it kind of sucks to be like, he wrote this thing that made this other famous thing uh, on your well, grave. But I mean, anyway. I, but I will say as a, as a fellow Oklahoma boy, and I have not brought this up yet, but I, now's as good a time as any. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know me originally, I'm from Oklahoma. Uh, it's where I grew up, born and raised, uh, lived every day of my first 18 years in Oklahoma. Um, the state of Oklahoma has a lot of pride about the musical Oklahoma. Um, it's it's one, the title song is the state song. Um, and Lynn Riggs, as like an Oklahoma boy and playwright, like there is a lot of notoriety. Just, I mean, the fact that he, without him, this would never have happened. There is probably a lot of pride wrapped up in that. So not to, I'm not trying to take away your point. Your point is well taken. It's like, well, that's tough. But, but like Green Grow the Lilacs really only has survived as the predecessor to Oklahoma. Truly, like it is watching Oklahoma in the state of Oklahoma is a different experience. Um, if you've never done it, I recommend it once in your life because it is more like attending a pep rally than it is um, attending. It's like, you know, it'd be like going, it's like going to a, a live Rocky Horror Picture Show where like every, there are things that the audience says like we, there are lots of, I mean, it's a joyous, joyous experience. No, that is a good point that it's, it is so celebrated in Oklahoma that it would be, that does cast it in a slightly different light. It's not just like, he's a guy who was responsible for a, a different, more famous thing. But yes, so Green Girl of the Lilacs was a success for the Theater Guild. And the woman who was the director of the Theater Guild for many years, a woman named Teresa Helburn, who, let me just say this, I'm going to go down a serious rabbit hole about this woman afterwards because I did not know who she was. And she sounds fascinating and like she was responsible for a great deal of what American theater became. But anyway, she loved Green Grow the Lilacs and she was determined to get it turned into a musical, that it should become a musical and that she was going to spearhead it becoming a musical. So I'm going to leave my history there and pass it over to Michael Flynn to talk about how Green Grow the Lilacs became Oklahoma. In our segment called Putting It Together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So Teresa Helburn of the Theater Guild sees a revival of Green Grow the Lilacs at the Westport County Playhouse and was sure that it would be a great musical and a different kind of musical at that. So she approaches Richard Rogers, who at the time was partnered with Lorenz Hart, uh, though the partnership was coming to an end. Um, he was very interested in Green Grow the Lilacs and Hart was not. Coincidentally, Oscar Hammerstein was interested in Green Girl the Lilacs, and Rogers reached out to him to have a meeting. By the end of their lunch meeting, they had decided to work together. 
And their discussions first start at Rogers Farm in Connecticut, lots of Connecticut history with Oklahoma. Um, and they decided it would betray the source material and the spirit of the original play if they tried to adhere too closely to the conventions of Broadway at the time. And after weeks of debate, they decided to open the musical in the same way uh, the play did, with Aunt Eller sitting churning butter. Uh, inspired by the opening stage direction of Riggs's play, Hammerstein penned Oh, What a Beautiful Morning," which the original stage direction, just to read it because I think it's fascinating, is, quote, It is a radiant summer morning several years ago, the kind of morning which enveloping the shapes of earth, men, cattle in a meadow, blades of the young corn, streams, make them seem to exist now for the first time their images giving off visible golden emanation that is partly true and partly a trick of the imagination focusing to keep alive a loveliness that may pass away. And Hammerstein kept a great deal of Riggs's play, but trimmed and made um, a lot of jokes sharper. And in his words, quote, what was the third act of this play is all covered in about five minutes in our second act. And borrowing from operetta tradition, Hammerstein made the small role of Edo Annie into the center of a comic subplot and created Will Parker, a character only mentioned in passing in Green and Gray the Lilacs, uh, and changed the peddler from Syrian to Persian uh, and created this comic subplot of the two men vying for Edo Annie's affection, all the while it mimicking the central love triangle of Curly, Lori, and Judd. And obviously one of the biggest components that makes Oklahoma different from Green Girl Lilacs is dance. Agnes DeMille as choreographer makes a huge impact on the developmental process. Though Roger Hammerstein were initially skeptical of her, uh, she took uh, the brief outline that Hammerstein had written, uh, which notably included uh, the words, quote, take it, Agnes, and created a 13-minute ballet where Lori makes up her mind about whether Judd or Carly should take her to the box social. Rogers actually didn't even write the music for the ballet as she requested, so uh, she chose musical themes from the show. The rehearsal pianist improvised under what they created, and then Rogers would eventually approve that music. Uh, and though they were initially, you know, not so sure about her, they quickly really, really, really took to her. And um, I, I mean, clearly, her contribution is is what pushes it over the over the edge in terms of redefining the American musical. So the show plays its first out-of-town tryout in New Haven, and reports really vary on the initial reaction to the show at the time. Some people uh, were very nervous and uh, quite the naysayers about it, and others really took to it immediately. But changes absolutely go on during the tryouts in New Haven and Boston, including cutting the number boys and girls like you and me, which was a very gentle duet for Laurie and Curly in Act Two that ends up reappearing in a lot of um, later Roger and Hammerstein musicals when they have songs added in, um, in like Cinderella and State Fair. Uh, it was even uh, almost going to be in the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. Very weird, but there's some trivia. And it was replaced uh, by a reprise of People Will Say We're In Love. And perhaps most importantly, the changes to what would become the title song, exclamation mark, included uh, originally conceived as a solo for Curly, the orchestrator, Robert Russell Bennett, was brought up to Boston to rework the number, which he rearranged on the train for eight different vocal parts and apparently finished by the time the train had reached Old Saybrook. Uh, and it absolutely becomes the 11 o'clock number that the world now knows and loves. 
And if you're interested in um, learning more about the creation of the show, check our episode notes um, where uh, there are a few books that we consulted for all of this information. There are tons of very interesting and fascinating stories and accounts of how Oklahoma came to be. And so it moves to the St. James Theater in New York where it opens and uh, becomes the runaway smash that we all know today. Um, completely changes the course of musical theater. And um, one of those, it's a huge hit. It runs, the, it of course, sets the record for longest running Broadway musical that has now been eclipsed many times over. Um, and frankly, even in the way that we talk about runs today, like probably not all that impressive a run. Um, in a lot of by today's standards in a lot, a lot of ways, but it was an absolute um, sea change and, and smash hit. And yeah. of course, inspire, if there are no Tony Awards for it to speak of. It does get an honorary Pulitzer Prize um, but and has spawned, of course, many revivals and a movie. And um, I mean, yeah. 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 I mean, it's almost not worth going into all the many, many versions that have existed since then because there have been so many. Um, I think the statistic that I saw somewhere was that it's it's produced over 600 times a year, even now, which is now 76 years after it uh, opened. So it's just one of the biggest, most famous shows of all time. Although we should also remark, as we will talk about, there was a uh, very notable and uh, hotly debated revival a few years ago that started at Bard, the university. Um, directed by Daniel Fish, extremely stripped down, um, transferred to St. Anne's in Brooklyn and then to Broadway, uh, which really kind of, I'm not going to say reinvented it necessarily, but um, did something that people don't usually do with this show and uh, brought some brought some interesting uh, attention to it and exposed some interesting stuff about it. And the other, yeah, I mean, the other major revival to talk about is the National Theater production um, that... Uh, starred Hugh Jackman uh, over uh, across the pond and then um, eventually transferred here starring Patrick Wilson, but um, was the first to take a step very much in the darker direction, the the kind of naturalistic, real um, elements of Oklahoma with um, completely new choreography, arrangements, orchestrations, um, uh, but choreography by Su Susan Stroman. Um, and it, it is certainly a show that has been um, reinvestigated and uh reimagined looked at with a very particular lens um it, yes. it certainly it has that happen to it quite a lot um which we'll get into and as as is appropriate for a show that is really about america and community um it's also a show that has had productions that have completely reimagined what that would look like so there was a production on the west coast where uh the entire cast was black except for the peddler ali hackham um, which worked just fine. It was great. Um, there was a production where Lori and Curly were both women and Edo, Edo Annie and Will Parker were both men. Um, so, and, uh, Edo, and Ann Taylor was a, a trans woman. So they were uh, making some comments about gender and sexuality. And there have been lots of productions that have been uh, just very diverse with the cast and mixed it up. And it always, I mean, it always works. It's it's not a show that relies on its whiteness, even though obviously in its original production, it very much centered whiteness. Um, it has, it is a show that can be mined to to say lots of different things, um, depending on your approach to it. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Lonely Room? What's inside? 
Okay, so let's dive into Lonely Room, which is, of course, Judd's song in the first act. It's really his only song, um, which is just such a brilliant character study of a very complicated character. Uh, and it's so interesting because it's impossible for me to hear this song without thinking of Epiphany from Sweeney Todd, which, of course, is Stephen Sondheim much later. Um, Stephen Sondheim was the uh, protege of Oscar Hammerstein, basically learned everything he knows about lyric writing, which is a whole bunch from Oscar Hammerstein. And this honestly is the place where I really can see that DNA because exactly what is going on in this song, Lonely Room, which is this kind of mix of uh, rage and darkness and unsettling music and really beautiful emotion and like melodic beauty all crashing together is something that you see exactly in Epiphany later. So I just wanted to make that note at the top. Um, okay, but this is the song that happens after the smokehouse scene with Curly and Judd, where of course Curly has almost convinced Judd that the best thing he could do would be to kill himself, which is very dark. Um, and Judd is left by himself in this smokehouse and he sings this song. And really what is so brilliant about this song and one of the things that is really brilliant about this show and makes me really understand why it's so often considered uh, the, the standard bearer that it is, is because, you know, in earlier music goals and earlier plays, things like that, it, you know, you could tip this into being just a, a mustache twirling villain really. Uh, this dirty guy who lives in the smokehouse who's lusting after your ingenue leading lady, um, has a dark past, has talked about probably murdering people. A lesser version of this show would have made Judd just be that, just be villainous, just be dark, just be clearly the bad option for Lori that she only kind of uses in order to get Curly uh, to like her, something like that. But the inclusion of this song gives him so much more shading and so much more complication and just really brings us on a journey of pitying him, of feeling bad for his life, um, for the fact that he is basically shunned by everyone because he's dark and surly and strange. Um, takes us through that to a place where we really are afraid of him and realize that he is a scary man with sinister intentions. But it really plays with this. The levels of that go back and forth. It's so complicated and it's so interesting. So let us dive in. Okay, so I, obviously there's no lyrics yet, but already this is really unsettling music, right? Minor key, dark, creepy. You're getting that repetitive rhythmic pulse. It feels like a fast heartbeat, right? It feels like a heartbeat when you're agitated. This is, this is what your heartbeat feels like. And you want to get out of there. This is not a comfortable place to be at the beginning of the song. So you can feel both what it is to be Judd right now, frustrated, agitated, um, upset, and what it is to be with Judd, which is just uncomfortable and unsettling. Uh, so even in this little moment of orchestration before we're getting any lyrics, we're getting really beautiful 
uh, teaser as to who he is, both sides of who he is, frightening, pitiable, um, just this really interesting character. The The door squeaks. There's a field mouse a nibbling on a broom. And I sit by myself like a cobweb on the shelf. By myself in a lonely So this is very Oscar Hammerstein. It's beautifully simple, this lyric, and evocative language. We're hearing a description of what this space is, this small uh, space that's not really intended to be inhabited by a person, uh, but also how much Judd is barely even a presence. A field mouse is going about its business with him there, right? He's basically, as he says, a cobweb on a shelf, just a passive part of this space, a passive part of life, a non-entity. And the music shifts from that unsettled place at the beginning of the, the song to something sadder when he's talking about being alone. For the first time, we're given a little insight into the interior life of this character. And for the first time here, we're moved from this kind of defensiveness of like, oh, I don't like this guy, I don't like being here, to pity um, because he's so lonely. And we hear that in the music. It's just a by himself in a lonely room. And this is something the song is gonna do a number of times. But when there's a moon in my window and it slants down a beam across my bed and the shatter of a tree starts a dancing on the wall and a dream starts a dancing in my head. So here we're moved to something totally different. Judd is allowing himself to dream. He's he's inspired and we can feel his excitement. This is the most excited we've we've seen him about anything yet. Um, he's allowing himself to dream. He's he's feeling this, he's seeing this beautiful image of the moon and it, and the shadow of a tree dancing on his wall. I mean, it's a both a really beautiful illustration of how alone he is, because the fact that his companions are just like the shadows of trees that he gets inside his his little smokehouse, um, which is sad. But we also are taken with him to his joy at this beauty. Um, and I love there when it says the shadow is dancing on the wall and the the melody really echoes that dance. We can hear it. We're brought along with him to be able to musically visualize basically what he's seeing, which is always just a really, really, really lovely touch. So it's a surprise to have this surly character open up to us, but it's also a surprise to know that this part of him exists, this be beautiful, poetic, lovely person who's not surly, not dark, um, capable of seeing this incredible beauty around him. Um, so now we're kind of moved from that kind of, oh, we're scared of him, we don't want to spend time with him, to feeling a little bit bad that we made an assumption about him in the first place, right? We're going with him and we're really kind of feeling for him here because this is so lovely. And you can feel this ache in him of just being this lonely person. And all of the things that I wish for turn out like I want them to be. And I'm better than that smart alley cow hand. 
And here we get something entirely different. We go deeper into this excited place of his daydreams. He's really allowing himself to go into this fantasy that he has of, uh, you know, a world full of beauty. And now we're getting some of the details of his actual life. Um, you know, the things that he wants come true, uh, including that he's better than Curly, because he has to have a smack against Curly, his rival, and two people who just really hate each other. And then he gets to Lori, the girl that we know from the beginning he has a crush on. Um, and we really get this musical shift, that dark pounding heartbeat music that's really been accompanying everything so far drops totally away. And it becomes this, this just purely lovely, melodic, beautiful place. Strings, we get all this sweetness. It's soft and it's sweet. Um, the, definitely the sweetest thing we've heard from him yet. We can tell that when he's getting to Lori, this is going to a place of emotion. It's, it's love, it's love and yearning. Um, and it's so beautiful. It's the music of what he feels for her. And of course it's a little bit uh, bittersweet because he's yearning for her because he doesn't have her, he can't have her, etc. But this feels like someone who really, really cares. Um, and of course we have this interesting thing too with this lyric, uh, the girl that I love ain't afraid of my arms, which really cuts here. He knows that she's afraid of him. Um, and that's kind of a sad place to be. If you're now brought to the place where Judd is a person who's capable of poetry and beauty, and he's just a sad, lonely person who really loves this woman, then that is kind of a sad reminder of the way that the world sees him, which is that everyone's just kind of keeps him at arm's length because they just find him unsettling. Um, but it also has a slightly sinister task too, because he doesn't, it, it just is a little bit, it's a reminder that he is, that she is afraid of him, right? Fear plays a part here. And what's interesting too, is he never says love. Um, he says the girl that he wants, uh, which is going to be a little bit of a foreshadowing to something that's going to play, come into play a little later in the song. going on right there he's really allowing himself to go for it here this music is so big and so dramatic it sounds like peeling church bells it sounds like ocean waves crashing against a, a breaker it's really just it's the bit like he's really allowing himself to to dive into this um and i love that we get that crashing music at, right after the lyric not on it because I think that's a really subtle and beautiful illustration of what Joe Judd is singing about, the hair just falling wildly on his face. You know, he's just covered by this beautiful hair, but also it's a little bit of a good illustration of how he's not entirely in control of his emotions. Um, you know, it, it the music is so big here, it has a life beyond his words and it's just full, it's tempestuous, right? It's full and it's strong and it's big. Um, it's like the rain in a storm, as he says, which of course on the, you know, in Oklahoma Prairie is like a big deal. Those, <laughs> those storms are intense. Um, so you really get a sense of that crash. But the other thing is 
here that's so interesting is this is to me really a glimpse into a sexual fantasy. Um, we're given a sense of what his fantasies really are. This is a character who has porn all over his hut, basically. He has like girly postcards. And I think this moment is about as darkly sexual as Rogers and Hammerstein's really allowed themselves to get. Um, we get this big sweeping, darkly emotional music, plus the idea of hair falling on his face. And if you're thinking about, you know, he's just sung about she's in my arms, her, her arms keep me warm. So we already are brought to the place where they're embracing, but now like you think about why a woman would have her hair down and why it would be crashing all over his face. You'll get a sense of what position they're in. Um, so they're not saying overtly that his fantasies are sexual, but I think that's definitely in here, which is such an interesting shading for this particular character. And a good argument for the interpretation a lot of productions take, especially now, which is the idea that Judd is inherently sexual. There's something about him that Lori is drawn to and what she is actually afraid of is her attraction to him rather than him being kind of sinister and dark or maybe a little bit of both, but that's certainly right here, right? And then we get that big build with that crashing music that kind of abruptly ends, which, I mean, he's alone in his room dreaming about being in the arms of his lady. It does sound like something has happened there. I'm just going to say that. But of course, certainly, even if you're not going to take that tack, um, certainly this emotion is there. We can't hear this without knowing that he has intense feelings for this woman. This sweeping music captures that so beautifully. And, you know, we, we have an interesting mix here of we feel for him because he has such intense feelings for this woman who doesn't return them. Um, and he's so shunned, he's so rejected, he's so enamored with Lori. There's just so much going on here in a character that is shut off and shunned. Um, so we're kind of in this interesting mix, but also this, this music is so big that there's something a little bit uncontrolled about it and we're a little bit scared by that. Like we're in a very interesting emotional place. And then of course, we're gonna get this. The floor. The door squeaks and the mouse starts a nibbling on the broom and the sun flicks my eyes. It was all a bag of lies. I'm awake in a lonely So we go right back to the beginning of the song. We get back to that kind of small contained creepy music that just indicates that something is brewing here. And now it's a little bit more sinister because he's pulled back from this emotional place back to this kind of sense of like, oh, I'm back in control of this. Um, and now it's it's similar imagery from the very beginning, but now it's, it's a, a little bit even darker. You know, the sun is aggressive to him, is flicking him. Um, and he knows now that this fantasy is the reality. So now is there's that sense of self-punishment too. You know, he's he doesn't even have the comfort of his fantasies. He has the sad reality that none of this is real. And I this is Schuler Hensley with the uh, National Theater uh, recording, just because I, I really love this recording. And Schuler Hensley just gave a stunning performance. And I love his decision to yell pack of lies 
which tips us from that place of potentially pitying him uh, into this place where we're reminded that what lurks in this man is violence. It's just under the surface here, um, which I think is also implicit in that idea that this is a pack of lies, right? He's not saying it's all fake, like none of it's real, which is what you might think if you're saying like, oh, I'm dreaming of winning an Oscar. Or I'm dreaming of whatever it is. Oh, that's not that's not real. A lie is something somebody tells you. And of course, nobody has told him these lies. He's told himself these lies. But by framing it that way, it was all a pack of lies. Basically, he's now implying that this is somebody's fault, that this is not true. Um, and even that shift, that little tiny shift is telling us a lot. And of course, we're going to see that grow exponentially in the rest of the song. I ain't gonna dream about her arms no more. I ain't gonna leave her alone. So even that, I mean, that's just a little tiny part, but you can feel the switch. Now the music has shifted to something that is much more regimented and intentional. We're, we're feeling that kind of rhythmic, like a march, almost like this is the planning phase. Um, and he tells us what he's gonna do. I'm not gonna dream for her arms no more. And then the creepier, I ain't going to leave her alone, um, which really just cuts out under the knees all of the sweetness of his feelings for her before. Because there's a lot of ways to say, I'm going to go from wanting this woman to I'm going to try to get her. Um, you know, I'm going to make her love me, whatever it is. Uh, I ain't going to leave her alone is not the one you would expect if you were gonna feel great about this guy. That's super creepy. It's super possessive, um, super aggressive. It's basically, we're reminded here that Judd is not actually just a lonely guy who is misunderstood, who's in this house, who contains poetry and beauty and is in love with a woman who doesn't pay attention to him. He is a dark and sinister man who is, contains great violence and his creepy, creepy, images of women. Um, it's just straight toxic here. It's so interesting. so creepy um it just gets worse that big crashing tempestuous music is now used for get myself a bride eek and that sense that he's a little out of control of his own emotions now takes on a really dark and frightening tone um get me a woman to call my own not only is this really sinister language from a man talking about a woman um that possessiveness i mean i don't i don't feel like i need to explain that too much how really disturbing that is. Um, but it's also separated entirely from Lori, which is kind of an interesting choice as well. The Judd we could pity earlier dreamed of the girl that he wanted with soft arms and long yellow hair, you know, in his arms. There was a softness and a sweetness and a specificity about he didn't, it wasn't just that he wanted you know, a woman to have sex with. He didn't want one of his like poster girls, which is what he says to, to Ali Hackam. He wants Lori specifically. He wants a romantic encounter with Lori. Um, but now this is general. That 
that person is not present here. He's going to get himself a bride, get him a woman to call his own. He's going to take, he's going to go outside and he's going to take. And that is terrifying. That is really terrifying. Um, and the song ends on this great final unsettled note, right? It builds to that big, big, big note um, that earlier felt a little bit like maybe it was an orgasm. But now it doesn't feel like the song has actually resolved. Uh, and of course it hasn't. We've, we're left at the end of the song feeling like, uh-oh, he has now gone, made a decision, which is that he's going to go out and do something that is really scary. The song is leaving us, the, the melody of the song is leaving us in an unsettled place because the song is leaving us in an unsettled place. It's leaving on a very active note. Um, it's not leaving us in a sort of like, oh, I love her and I wish I could have her sigh. The, this man has made a decision. He's gonna change his tack and he's gonna do something else. Again, like Epiphany where we have um, a real mix of emotion and sinisterness that ends up with a decision made to, to go murder a bunch of people. Um, but the song's ingredients getting us to this point uh, are just so smart. We are scared of him now. He's called himself to action basically, and we're terrified of what he's gonna do. Um, but we also see that kind of hurt man in there somewhere. And we see that sexual man in there. And this is just such an interesting, complex, wonderful song that for a time when theater was not always so complex and certainly musical theater was not so always so complex, uh, it really shows why Oklahoma broke the mold in a bunch of ways. Like this is, this is a very, very psychologically complicated portrait of an individual. Um, and it's in there in the music, it's in there in the lyrics. It's so good. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with Oklahoma, both internal and external to it. So Oklahoma, and as I said, I'm, I'm from there. I've seen this show probably more than I have any other musical simply because of my geographic, uh, the geographic location of my birth and childhood. Um, but I think everyone has seen a bad high school production of Oklahoma, and it certainly has a reputation as um, being incredibly easy to produce for high schools and amateur groups all around. It is done, as we said earlier, it is, I think, one of the statistics I read, and I'm not sure if this is just about Roger Hammerstein as a whole, although I'm sure it's true of Roger Hammerstein as a whole, if it's true of Oklahoma, but that like somewhere every day, somewhere in the world, someone is producing Oklahoma. Um, that is just the nature of this show. I think, I'm not sure if it applies to just Oklahoma, but certainly to Roger Hammerstein. But the, the point being, um, it is a show that is very deceptively simple. It is about a boy and girl who are, are they going to go to this picnic together or are they not? Um, and that sentence story of it and just the kind of everyday guy gets girl nature of the story, um, it, I think a lot of people think of Oklahoma as incredibly boring and inc incredibly uninteresting and not complex at all. Sort of like, ah, most cowboys. It, you know? Ooh, it's, it's a little like broadly drawn it's immensely parried like parodyable i guess um and certainly easy to to uh rip upon and uh and i think has 
put it in a position where a lot of people want to do bold things with it because uh, it is so foundational and so a part of the conversation in a way that to um, to take a bold point of view and approach with it um, feels, you know, uh, in a way that people do with Shakespeare, to be quite frank. I, th I think it is the closest thing in the musical theater canon to being treated in that way that, that it is um, thought of very boldly. I guess as I'm, we joke all the time um, to all the listeners to the program, we um, joke all the time that there's a word that we tend to repeat over and over and over again when it comes to a certain episode. And I feel like for me, it's going to be bold. But Annika, <laughs> talk about some of the, because I, you know, I know the show very well. I've never thought of it as so as um, simple. It has always had Judd. It has always had Lonely Room, which you just um, so expertly uh, took us through. It has always had some of these, um, these darker elements. Um, but uh, talk a little bit about some of those complexities and, and why is it you think that it's it's gained the reputation it has? Yeah, well, it's such an interesting question because you're right. I think this is one of the leading candidates of like suffered from some bad high school productionitis. But and and also when you look at the history, as you said, you know, there was a push to take some of the darkness of the original source material and smooth it out a little bit. So you do get this very happy ending where it's like, oh, the villain died, but it's okay. It wasn't really his fault. And now he can go, you know, the the, the worst thing that could happen is that Curly is going to miss his like train to the honey. You know, there's a little bit of like, we, everything's fine. Um, and a big celebration of America at the end when, when there is this, you know, death at the heart of it. Um, so I can see why people might have that little push of like, oh, there's something here that there that is a little too cheery sometimes. Although I really don't think that that's fair to the text. I mean, a lot of what people say, like, it's hard to read this script and not appreciate how much is in the script. But I also feel like lots of people clearly are reading the script and missing some stuff because there is so much to these characters. And one of the things that I find really fascinating is if you look at Curly, who is arguably one of the more boring parts in the show, because he's a leading man, he's handsome, he sings beautifully, he's in love with Lori. You know, he's, he doesn't, it doesn't initially present as someone who he's not, he doesn't present as someone like Judd, who clearly has a ton going on and is very complicated. Um, but if you look closely at Curly, Curly is just as interesting and complicated. Like, first of all, Curly is a storyteller. The thing that, that Curly is doing in every single scene is he's he's basically an artist. He is creating scenarios beautifully. He does it right off the bat. I mean, he comes in singing, there's a bright golden haze. I mean, his, his language in Ode a Beautiful Morning is very beautiful. He creates that entire narrative for her with Sir with a Fringe on Top you know, the beautiful mental picture that he, that he spins for her. And then he does it in the, in the smokehouse with Judd. He's creating a complete story about the funeral and, and Judd buys it. I mean, Judd, who is his villain, his enemy who hates this guy because he is his rival for Lori's affection. He manages to be so effective with his storytelling that he totally sucks Judd into this almost buying the idea that he should just kill himself because then people will cry at this funeral. Like, so 
that is an element of Curly's character. And can I add, he even does that with the, with the box social. Like, he creates a yeah. situation in which he gets to enter as, like, the very stereotypical, like, I'm here to save everybody and, like, do the auction in front of... I mean, even that, he is creating a story. I've never thought about it this way. But you're right. very, very right. And it's it goes along with the kind of folk hero type thing that they tried to create with him and his musicality and how he does things. So it's fascinating. It's just interesting. It's like, it, it just goes to show that like Oscar Hammerstein is too good a writer to really let any character be one or two dimensional. Like it, it's not that simple. And the other thing that always interests me about Curly, which I kind of teased before is like, Curly is very weird about sex. Like there's a few moments in the show where he is kissing Laurie and is like, get away from me. Like put kind of is like, pushes away the notion of sexuality in a way that other characters clearly do not like Ada Wani and Will Parker who are like kissing all over the place and Allie Hackham and like I was gonna say, sex, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but Curly has this it happens two or three times where he sort of like is like get get away from me you know you're get like he has this weird sort of pull and that's an interesting part of that character that you wouldn't think either because he is the guy who gets the girl. And ultimately you're sort of like, huh, that's an interesting element in this character. So this is all to say that like, if you actually look closely at this, at these characters, every single one of them has a lot going on. I mean, Edo Annie is a very interesting character because she's like, sure. She's like a little sex pot, but at the same time, she kind of doesn't know what sex is until the end of the show. You know, she's just, going purely on a sort of visceral instinct of what she wants, which is to make out with a lot of dudes. You know, she's both incredibly funny and smart and also not smart at all. Like, you know, there's, they register as real people a lot more than they might. Other, I don't think this show would have lasted as long as it has, if it were as simple as like handsome cowboy, you know, feisty lady love, and then like slutty friend and, dumb other friend like they there's a lot to work on here so there's a lot that a smart production can go into and really flesh that out and pull out not to mention what daniel fish did which is like really pull the idea of a community that has decided what what qualifies as as something they want inside their community versus something they don't um you know and they and the ending can go extremely dark as daniel fish went with i mean basically what he did with the ending of the show was was to make it ultimately kind of suicide by curly curly was shot judd it was very different than he uh, murdered him in cold blood he murdered him in cold blood let's call yeah yeah not as cold blood as apparently the original version of the bard show did which was that apparently judd brought a gift to the wedding opened the box, uh, Curly opened the box, it was a gun, Curly took the gun and just shot Judd. So it was a little less suicide by by Curly, where the one on Broadway was was a little bit more nuanced, where it really felt like Judd was kind of saying to Curly, like, I have no place in this world, just kill me. Um, and then there was this, like, bacchanal of, of the the town sort of going through this fake court case. And of course, which was all a lie now because they were, you know, saying like, yeah, he fell on his knife. I saw it, which we had obviously just seen was not even remotely true. So it it became this kind of very sinister kangaroo court of like everybody in this community deciding that, you know, they didn't want Judd there anyway. So they were just going to make it right. Um, Which obviously is a little bit more changing the, the text than, 
uh, a normal production would have the latitude to. But it did bring out a lot of the interesting stuff that's in that last scene about, you know, this is a this is a society that's completely willing to bend the rules of law and order in order to like get the cowboy they love on the train that he needs to get on to go have his honeymoon, you know? So, um, so there's a, there's a lot in this text. And I think if you are doing a production, I mean, if you're doing a production in high school and it's kind of simplistic and broad, fair enough, because, you know, not well, and- slam high school performers, but maybe they're not the most nuanced, but Otherwise, you have no excuse. But There's also, a lot in this. Well, and and I think it's also worth mentioning that in the in the grand history of musical theater, they were largely regurgitated from exactly what they were when they originally happened. There wasn't a ton of reimagining, rethinking as if they were brand new. There was not a lot of that. It was a lot of the same version of it over and over and over and over again. We've now entered a time where that's not what we're doing with shows anymore, and that they are being interpreted as if they are new and the, you know, the relationship to the page is, is, um, different. Um, until not to, um, toot your dad's horn, but, um, Annika's dad, who formerly the president and CEO of the Roger Hammerson organization, very boldly let people interpret the works anew and say that like, you know, artists are capable of reinterpreting and creating these works, um, in revival capacity as if they're brand new things and we should, encourage that for the pieces so um shout out to ted chapin um i can do that because i'm not his daughter but like shout out um <laughs> but like yeah, you know it, it's that is yeah. part of the dna in some ways that's part of the cultural dna of of the shows is a certain baked in kind of um a certain baked in thing that like was very managed over the course of years um and by through movie adaptations through you know bus and truck tours and whatnot so it's it's certainly it's it's a fascinating thing to think about and to and to um analyze just how how the show gets to a certain um how people think of it yeah and i i mean i think the ultimate thing and i think this is i don't want to speak for my father but this is this is something i've heard him say before which is that you know these shows can take they are brilliantly constructed works of theater. So there's a lot in them, you know, to be drawn out, to be, to be explored. If they were lesser pieces of theater, then they would fall apart. If you try to, to tease out the theme of like the sinister nature of community, Um, you know, it it just wouldn't work. It would act like you were sort of parodying the original work. And it, I think it's a credit to Oklahoma that n- none of the versions I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of versions, have ever felt like it's parodying the source material. It always feels like whatever interpretation you're going for, you can find support in there. And I, and I think the other thing is that, you know, audiences change. I mean, one of the things that I, that I found very interesting about Oklahoma's trajectory specifically is, you know, for a while, it seems the Judd trajectory was very clear. It was Judd is a creepy guy who is not attractive, who lives in a smokehouse and is dirty and kind of gross and sinister. And Laurie is scared of him. And in recent years, I mean, like I'd say every, every production I've seen in the past, well, I mean, many productions I've seen in the past 15 years have gone with a sort of sexy Judd which is the interpretation that 
it's not that what scares Lori about Judd is not necessarily that he is a scary guy, although there's partially that too, but also that he is a very sexy guy and that she is attracted to him and afraid of the fact that she is attracted to him as opposed to Curly, who, as we, as I said, is like a lot less overtly sexual. Um, and I think part of that idea comes from, from uh, a world in which, you know, I think we're much more drawn to complex characters who have a lot of darkness in them in, you know, I mean, obviously like in the recent years, there's been like a joker. Every villain has been like reimagined, but even before that, I think for a long time, uh, you know, Sondheim is not interested at all in characters who are a little bit more stable <laughs> to be true. You know, I think I think the tide shifted over time to being drawn to these characters who were dark, complicated, full of psychological baggage. And so there was a natural inclination to kind of draw Judd out as a character. And then what happened after that was that there was this idea that um, you know, you could you could pull this out, and it, this was a this was a sexuality thing in addition to the other stuff. And I think again, credit to Oklahoma. If you read this script and you want to do a sexy Judd, there is support in the text for that interpretation. I don't think there's support in the text for he is only a sexy guy and he's just been villainized because I do think he is also deeply a creepy guy and who murdered people and burned a fire. You know, like yeah, he's not I only, mean. He's not a good guy, but, and as we saw with Lonely Rome, he's not a good guy, but there, you can do that. You can go there if you want to do it. It's, it, there's shading, there's complexity in there. You can pull that out if you want to, or you could just do it so that Judd is a creepy guy who lives in the smokehouse and she is just afraid of him because he's gross and, and well, scary. And, and to your point, I mean, that, that sexiness, that, that kind of carnal sexual nature that, um, Laurie, or how I interpret that, the carnal, like the carnal aspect of, of her attraction to Judd, that has been there from the beginning. That is the original foundation of Agnes DeMille's dream ballet is like, I have this love for Curly and yet I am interested and attracted to whatever this is. And, and where is the cross section of those things? Yes, it scares me. And it probably scares me for somewhat good reason, because he's a little bit, um, you know, a little bit of a, murderer and sociopath just a teen you know he's got he's a little bit like you know deep, he's definitely um misogynistic um definitely like some some not great things about mr judd um but like that that has always been integral to to the piece and its darker psychological aspect so in keeping with the the judd conversation and whatnot there obviously the ins and the outs and the us versus the others and farmer v cowman all that stuff i i think it is worth talking about um the the larger um historical context of what it was to be in indian territory simply because i'm from there and took oklahoma history and like that's certainly a certain version of history that was that was told and taught for a many for many number of years and and whatnot oklahoma the musical takes place before Oklahoma is made a state in the year of 1907. And for those of you, as Anika and I were preparing for the podcast, I grew up knowing what the Oklahoma land run was because I'm from there and that's, you talk about it, it's a big deal. But for people who may not be aware, Oklahoma was Indian territory and um, the, the Native Americans uh, were literally rounded up and, and walked there from their previous ancestral homes. Um, and relocated by um, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and uh, the U.S. government. And uh, many people died 
in in that journey. It's called the Trail of Tears. It's really awful and terrible. Um, and they were all relocated to what is present day Oklahoma. Um, but at a certain point, the American government decides that this land is no longer going to be Indian territory. It is going to be opened up to whoever wants it in a very, um, in a land run, essentially. So all these people lined up and they, uh, at whenever the gun went off at high noon or whatever it was, you took your, your schooner and your horses and your family and you literally staked a claim. You put stakes in the ground with rope and said, this land is now my land. Um, and then it was your land. And that's how, that's how Oklahoma became, um, no longer, um, Indian territory, um, or the land of the Native American land. So Oklahoma takes place in that weird section between like, this land has now been effectively conquered and, um, overtaken and people have been pushed out of it to, uh, 1907 when it actually becomes a state. Um, the 46th state, in fact, I believe, um, I might be wrong on that number, but I think I got that right. But the point being, Native Americans are nowhere to be seen in the musical Oklahoma. Uh, and that it, the piece has come under a lot of criticism for that, and understandably so, um, since that is the history of um, the literal location of Claremore and those places where I was literally where I grew up. Um, I mean, Tulsa, but that's near Claremore and whatnot. Um, so that, but they're nowhere near. And, and the point is like, it's, that is the, the treatment of the other in the musical Oklahoma is kind of most easily associated with Ali Hackam, who is a Persian peddler and very much, um, a stereotype of what, um, that kind of caricature would be. There's a lot of, um, you know, in our, in lovely table work discussions, there's lots of discussions about is Ali Hackam actually Persian, um, is he actually something else posing as, you know, like whatever the, the complexities that we can get into with the, um, the choices made in individual productions of Oklahoma. But, um, Annika, how do, I mean, how do we as theater makers and, um, artists in the 21st century, how do we bring, um, our acknowledgement and their understanding of the complexities of the history to a piece that we've already said is quite complex, but how, how do we square that circle and engage with a piece that is um, ultimately, I don't, I hate to say it's whitewashed, but there's not the, you don't feel the fact that they have, that, that they've taken this land from other people. You would think it's just the good old homeland country land, which is the point of view that they were going for clearly. And Green Brother Lilacs has a lot more, um, even like the feeling of, um, you know, because Lynn Riggs was Cherokee, because there are lots of, there's a lot more in that, that I feel like Ringer the Lilacs feels a little more authentic in that way, in terms of what it was to be in that time and that place. But how do we, how do we engage with that as, as 21st century um, musical theater people? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really tricky this one because you cannot argue that there is any presence of Native Americans in the show. There really is not. And I'm, I've seen some interesting and to me slightly odd arguments about how you, you know, that you can feel the presence of the Native American in the show and they're like hovering and, and sin and I was like, what? No, I've seen the show a million times. I've never seen a production that, where it feels like there's even an acknowledgement that there were people here before or that this land was owned by someone. 
um, before or inhabited by someone like they're just absent. And that is problematic. You know, I mean, the fact that the only time you, you see it is Indian country, which is what Oklahoma was called. Um, I think that there's probably a way I've never seen a production do this and I don't want to speak for any permissions, but I, I think if you wanted to, there would be a way to sort of simply have native American present, um, at some point in this narrative, simply just maybe at the overture watching and then going away to just highlight the fact that they are not in this uh, narrative. But otherwise, I'm not sure what you can do, really. It is it is not the story that is being told in Oklahoma. And that in, in itself is is unfortunate to our contemporary knowledge where we know the, the part of this story that isn't there. But um, I think you just have to sort of wrestle with it as a production thing. Although there are some arguments that are leveled at the show that I don't feel are kind of justified. One of the ones I saw was that the the, the very, very word Oklahoma means red people. Um, and so I, I read an interesting piece that was saying that uh, the use of the word Oklahoma and when it's, when it's sung again and again and again, it's like the most, it's the worst form of appropriation because um, there's no Native Americans and they're singing Oklahoma again and again and again. Um, that I have trouble with because the name of the state is Oklahoma. You know, the show did not choose what the state was called. Perhaps the name of the state itself is problematic, but I think sometimes we, especially now, we lay things at the feet of art that is using facts, but we have problems with those facts. And instead of just simply saying that is a problematic fact that the art has to deal with because you can't have a show about the formation of the state and call it something else. Um, we blame the art, which seems somehow easier for us to say that's a problem. And it's like, well, that's that's the repetition of something that might set might itself be problematic. But that I don't think that's that you can lay that at the feet of Oklahoma. I mean, but the interesting thing about Ali Hackam, I think, is that. Ali Hakam, as you've said, is the only outsider character in the show, overtly. I mean, Judd is an outsider because he's creepy smokehouse murderer man. Um, so he's definitely someone that the the people have decided is not someone who wants to participate or that they either, whether they decide that he should not participate in the way that everyone else does or whether he has decided that he is not following society's rules in the same way. Um but Ali Hakam is the only character who is a different race or ethnicity, or at least stated to be a different race or ethnicity than anybody else in the show. And what I've always found interesting about that is he's really not an outsider at all. You know, um, he's like all of the fathers of the town are fully happy to have their daughters marry him, which you would think would be a, a kind of, visceral xenophobic thing if they were going to be racist or xenophobic to someone they would say like you can't marry my daughter but they're totally happy for that to happen he's hanging out with the guys when he's around you know he's coming and go he's going to settle down and start a store there's there's nothing that overtly indicates that his presence as a person who is not white um is problematic for these people at all um which is kind of a really interesting element in this mix. I mean, I, I personally am sort of of the feeling that Ali Hakam is not actually really Persian, um, just because I feel like the way that it's brought up is so 
I mean, he, he is a, a man who clearly will use any advantage he has because he's a he's a charmer. He's a salesman. He's, you know, clearly comes into these towns and has dalliances with all these ladies and then scoots out. I mean, the way he deals with Will Parker is very, very funny and clever. That whole series of events. So it's always just kind of felt to me like this is an angle that he's worked and he might just be a Caucasian dude from the next county over who's decided that sounding like he's Persian makes him like feel more exotic. He doesn't really speak in a different way, which is something that Oscar Hammerstein does. Obviously, we've seen the South Pacific. He will sometimes write different characters in this sort of pigeon speech. Um, well, and Oklahoma is written in an Oklahoma dialect of like get and true. all those things. So like it is, there is definitely, yeah. yeah, that. Yeah. So he's, you know, he says it's a scandal. It's an outrage, which is not, but like, so does everybody kind of some. Um, so, you know, I think that's a choice you could make. In some ways, it's almost weirder to me when you have, because there have been productions I've seen where they, they, they hire someone who is uh, from a Middle Eastern background and who adds elements of actually being a Persian peddler into the mix. And honestly, it kind of sometimes doesn't really work because it sort of makes you have more questions about how this guy got here a little bit. Like, you know, and, and like, does sound just like everyone else. And like, you know, and the jokes he makes about like his brother having six wives are so like out of, you know, central casting kind of like what someone who doesn't really actually know anything about Iran would say as a joke, you know, like it's, it's kind of an interesting question. And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Oklahoma. So Annika, what, who is your favorite character in Oklahoma? I have to say Ado Annie. I mean, well, let me, let me say this. I always loved Ado Annie. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I just thought same. she was the How can you not? Think- same. Yeah. Yeah. But I've also have a great fondness for Aunt Eller because she's also a badass. So, and it, it, that is something that as I've gotten older, I sort of have gravitated more towards Aunt Eller, maybe because I'm becoming one. But well, um, but I think Aunt Eller is the underappreciated center of the story, and like you know, mother of this entire community that like you yeah. take for granted because she's just she fills a stock character type within Roger Hammerstein, but also like you know, yeah, the wise older person but she is the center and pillar of this community yeah and i also appreciate that both of those characters are women who are funny they're both funny i mean they're both really like making jokes and giving it to you know especially during farmer and the cowman um they're just as a lot of like strength in both of those characters in a really cool way that i appreciate so I like them both. What about you? My favorite, because I would agree with you when I was growing up, Ado Annie was was my yeah. favorite probably growing up. Um, I really love Lori. I really do. Oh. And I, I, I think she is infinitely interesting. I think it, musically speaking, I, I have grown... I have grown into liking her songs even more than I did when I was um, younger. Like I love many a new day. I think out of my dreams is one of the, is absolutely gorgeous and like a sleeper and they're not, neither of them spoiler are going to be my favorite song, but they like, they absolutely are just compelling. And I, I think her as um, clearly a different kind of girl in this community, I think has always really appealed to me. And um 
I just, I really love Lori. I, I, maybe it's the girl next door of it all. I don't know. I just, I, I just want to, I feel like if I lived in the world of the musical Oklahoma, I would be friends with Lori. Like that's who I'd be friends with. I'd probably be friends with Leo Andy though too. TVH. Mm-hmm. Probably. Well, they're buddies. You know. They're buddies. Yeah. Although I, and I, I alluded to this earlier, but I love that we all kind of assume that Curly and Will Parker are best friends when there's really nothing in the text to support them being best friends. Like we just kind of assume yeah. that they're best friends. Like but they're not like, it's they fine. They just have like interact that one time. One time. <laughs> they have like, they have like two interactions and like one of them, Will's like, well, you got mine. I got to go get your, or my, like, you know, you got yours. Yeah. I got to get mine. Like that's not best friend talk. Anyway, right. these are the, the assumptions we make about all, about all people in musicals that they're best friends yeah. <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah. So what's your favorite song in Oklahoma? You know, this might be a controversial choice, but I, and, and obviously there are many beautiful songs that I love and appreciate from Oklahoma, but I love Farmer and the Cowman. It is I a, almost answered it. It's great. It's a great song. It's so fun. It just, I mean, talk about an act two topper. It's just a blast. I always love it. It gets stuck in my head. I think there's some funny jokes in there there actually is a fair amount of like dramatic storytelling with with the tension building between the two sides i mean it's both beautifully constructed and it's just super fun to listen to i completely completely agree shout out to the original dance arrangements which are fantastic and also the susan stroman new dance arrangement which is thrilling both of them are great and in their own ways um but i totally especially growing up when i was younger my favorite song was farmer in the common especially yeah um i think now my answer first off i do love the ballet um both versions Mm -hmm. the original and the stroman i think both of them are gorgeous um and i love to listen to them and segueing into farmer the common is also great I, for sentimental reasons, I have to say that my favorite song is Oklahoma because I love it. It's my state song. It gives me a lot of pride. I, it's, it's also a bop and I, am uh, not afraid to tell you and to admit to, um, listeners of the program that, uh, because I was, um, like a choir kid growing up and like it was our state song like we learned it and i do in fact know my eight part harmony to be because that song is written in eight parts which is not typical in a musical but it is and i do know um my base two line of oklahoma 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 <laughs> oklahoma uh and the and when we say yo i what's the there's one of the desk camps that's very random that like you don't really hear but it's there like uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma's grand. Like there's like that little stuff. Anyway, <laughs> so I like weirdly know it too well, but I I love it, and it That's has an, an exclamation mark for a reason. Yeah. Okay, what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Oklahoma? Um, I will say, uh, you know what I was realizing when I was choosing this, I was like, man, I guess I really like tense scenes between two men um you really have a thing for like raw masculinity that's really like a theme that's developing for you i don't i don't normally (laughs) think so but well okay so what i was gonna say is the smokehouse scene sure of um, course (laughs) which i really really love and i think is so brilliantly written and i think the interaction between those two guys is fascinating i think the way that curly 
kind of draws that that picture for Judd is really interesting. Into Poor Judd is Dead. I mean, I just think it's a beautifully, beautifully written scene. But I was thinking about how I think my favorite thing in Ragtime was the scene between Full House and Younger Brother, which I also really love. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I guess I like really dense scenes that are sort of like coming across as more casual than the moment calls for. Uh, well, and there is a little bit of a thread to run through Assassins with that too. And through that episode, That's true. I was going to say, in my own defense, I can't think of a lot of scenes like this that are written for women. So I would love to see scenes in which women are in this kind of circumstance and doing similar things, because I know from my own life that that is a thing that happens. So dramatists, more scenes between women. I would, I would say, um, gypsy and, uh, in all seriousness, I would say Gypsy, had, although it's not as casual, but I would say it in all no, seriousness. No, you're right, you're right. So what's your favorite miscellaneous? Okay, so shout out first to the fact that there is like a quote-unquote official home of Oklahoma, and it was called Discovery Land, and it was an outdoor theater in Oklahoma that every summer, all they did was perform Oklahoma, definitely tourist trap, definitely, definitely also something that I went to many times as a child. Um, you are blowing my mind. Um, your dad's, your dad's been there. Your dad and I actually well, talked about it. Me and I LOL. have some words because I did not know this was a thing. It is, it is no done. longer a thing. They are okay. defunct. They are defunct. Mm-hmm. Um, they are defunct, but they used to do Oklahoma every summer and they used to run it in rep with seven brides or seven brothers, which I guess you could also say has some overlap with Oklahoma, except it doesn't. Um, very different energies in terms of like Western style things. But, um, but I would say, so I, I will say Discovery Land has a special place in my heart. My favorite actual miscellaneous thing about Oklahoma, though, is the Oklahoma hello scene, which I think is so, so funny. I think technically in the licensing script, it's optional. You don't have to do it. Um, but it is written to be an in-one scene for the change between uh, the, um, the, the, um, the box social and back to Aunt Ellers for the wedding. Um, and it's basically where, like, um, Ado Annie is saying goodbye to Allie Hackham because she's going to go with Will Parker. And uh, he says he has to give her a Persian goodbye, you know, all that stuff. And then Will Parker, uh, instead of, like, giving a Persian goodbye, gives an Oklahoma hello, which is, uh, I will say, back to my earlier point of watching the show in the state of Oklahoma, that scene is an absolute pep rally. The Oklahoma hello does in fact, like always get a standing ovation. It's like a big hoop and holler moment. <laughs> it's very fun. And like, it's silly and totally like old school, like jokes that still very much land. Like it is like one of those kind of um, expertly written things. Um, but so my, mis- my miscellaneous favorite thing is the Oklahoma hello. I love that. And I, it never occurred to me that that specific line and or thing would have such a such a robust life. But you know what? That makes total sense. Raucous, raucous. Um, yeah, and it's great. I mean, who? Come on, who doesn't love a good hoop and holler at a book scene? Am I right? <laughs> and that will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. We talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So while this has underlined or been the subtext of our entire conversation, Oklahoma changes the game completely in terms of the history of musical theater. That is the place 
Um, I'm not even asking this as a question as I would normally. Its place is that it changed the shape of the American musical um, as a fully integrated piece of um, singing, dancing, acting, storytelling. It, it Everything serves the storytelling purpose. There's nothing that's inserted um, for an for a specific agenda that is not story related. Um, obviously there are things inserted and developed around audience reaction and pacing and whatnot, but it is all in service of the story. And it is the first um, musical to be designed around that point um, and, and created around that goal. Thanks to Teresa Halburn, Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers who who deserve and 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 sorry and Agnes DeMille. We cannot erase Agnes DeMille's contribution in yeah, terms of true. strong choreographic voice. Like she absolutely made the Dream Ballet integral to the piece in a way that I think they didn't even anticipate it being initially, um, which does kind of take it over the finish line in terms of that goal. I think. I do think there's a, an, a very academic and scholarly conversation to be had about whether or not we could call this the first integrated musical. I think it's definitely the leading candidate for first integrated musical to be on Broadway and to be created for Broadway. But I think mo like most other moments in history, there are a lot of things that are helping push the needle. This is the one that gets the credit and understandably so. Um, but I think there are quite a number of examples. We talked about Showboat last season, um, obviously being a huge game changer for the development of the musical, but then you have Porgy and Bess, you, um, Annika wisely brought up Pal Joey and Lady in the Dark as examples of things that are definitely inching forward toward this goal. Um, I also just think there's an interesting, some graduate student somewhere steal my thesis, talk about how Hollywood actually got to the integrated musical first, looking at things like Snow White, The Wizard of Oz, like, you know, there are definitely things that are, that predate Oklahoma in this realm of everything serving a story. That said, Oklahoma changes and makes it possible on Broadway and nothing that follows it hardly, like it, it really puts a death, like it gives the final nail on the coffin of the old fashioned vaudeville kind of musical attraction that has that has very little story relevance so annika beyond that what do you think oklahoma and obviously the partnership of roger hammerstein my god how could i forget that but annika what would you say beyond that what are the other things that it what's the other territory it claims to a waka make a waka waka reference to what we were talking about earlier i mean it it's it's almost hard to begin because i, I think it just is successful on so many levels. You know, I think using the dance as part of the storytelling is, is important. I think that that notion that it all has to be part of the same story is, is really probably to me the most important because you, in everything you mentioned before and except for maybe, I mean, it's interesting to, to, compare it to something like the wizard of Oz. Um, and I think there's something really interesting ab about the idea that like Hollywood would have done this first. And I think in some ways that makes sense because a film is a more contained storytelling medium. And I feel like it's much more difficult for film to change the rules of the narrative 
mid-flow in the way that we see with a lot of these shows that predate Oklahoma, like, you know, even something like Showboat, even something like Lady in the Dark, which has these kind of like fantasy scapes, um, you know, or the shows that had a little bit of both. So I think, I think the fact that that was being done on a stage is part of what makes it remarkable. It's sort of that they contained the, the world like it was almost a film. You know, they contained the tone, they contained the, the rules basically um, in a way that, that was so smooth and complete. It just felt like once it was unleashed upon the world, it was hard to kind of go back to that kind of, mishmash that it was before i mean and beautiful interesting mishmashes i don't want to i'm I'm not gonna oh i'm not smacking on those mishmashes like those are interesting things but it, it does it just does feel like when you look at oklahoma there's just such a it's so tight you know it's so tight and it's so clean and it's so complete and it's so of a piece it's it just is the one it, it makes sense to me that it's the one that that people just point to as as setting the standard well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Oklahoma. But first, Annika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? Where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. So, Annika, what is our clue for the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight? This show, as far as I'm aware, has the only song written about Costco that featured in an off-Broadway musical. It was cut. But not the first instinct of product placement in a Broadway musical. No, although I think they, I don't think they got product placement for this. I think they just wrote it out of the rightness of their heart. Listen, Costco is a cult, a cult I am not a part of, but I know many members. I mean, there are some things that my parents understand whenever they go, they have to buy for me. They do good stuff at Costco. Yeah, Look at us. Simping. We're simping for Costco. Good God. I know. But they pay their employees well. So Costco is a good corporation, folks. Maybe I'll get a job there. I was going to fuck. I did not just say that. <laughs> fuck. Oh, my God. That's sad. But also, they'd probably treat you better. Honestly, they probably <laughs> They'd probably would. treat you better. <laughs> Which is really depressing. Oh, that's it for now. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time!